that's an important part of the church experience is uh, touching base with those around us and sharing the love of Christ. Those of you who are taking in the service at home, we, uh, we are thankful for you and pray a blessing upon you today. But when you miss out, you just hear at home in the background all of the loving murmur that goes on in that part of the service. And I feel bad that you're not with us to take part in that. I know many of you uh, take in this service on YouTube after you've attended a physical service. I commend you for that. And those of you who aren't going to any service and don't have that first-hand contact with the body of Christ. I, uh, I admonish you, make a change in that, make a change. Condemnation and admonition are parts of all of the letters that Jesus writes to the seven churches. Last week, as we began a series of uh, messages looking at the letters of Christ to the churches, we began not at one of the churches mentioned, as we will today, being in Ephesus, but we began on the Isle of Patmos, were the elderly apostle, the last living apostle. It's been a quarter century since the great men of faith like the apostle Peter and apostle uh, Paul have been put to death uh, under the uh, tyrannical reign of the Roman emperor Nero. And now an equally tyrannical uh, persecuting emperor is on the throne. His name is Domitian and the last of the apostles uh, John, who'd lived so long that uh, rumor was going around that he was not going to taste physical death, but he would still be living when Jesus returned. He has now, for the cause of Christ and being faithful and true to speaking the word of God, he has been banished uh, from the mainland of Asia Minor, where he was ministering in his old age, to the Isle of Patmos, which is just a few kilometers off of the uh, off of the coast of modern day Turkey, or the Roman province of Asia Minor. And uh, we saw that uh, Jesus had appeared to him. And John hadn't heard that voice of his Lord and Savior, as John, remember, was the disciple that Jesus loved. He hadn't heard that voice in 60 years, but he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, worshiping and praying, and he heard a voice like thunder, like uh, the roar of a waterfall. And he turns and he sees Jesus in his glory. And even in his glory, he recognized Jesus, because remember, it was Peter James and John had seen Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration as he let his glory shine through on that wonderful occasion as Jesus was conferring and being encouraged by, uh, by uh, great men of faith who had come to be with him at that time. It was a powerful vision that Jesus had to encourage John as he was banished. We don't know how long he spent on the Isle of Patmos. Some people think it might be as short as a year because rather than being one of the great uh, Roman penal colony islands further north near the country of Greece, this was a local uh, imprisonment. It would have been a governor rather than the emperor himself banishing John to that island. It might have been as short as a year, but it could have been as long as 10 or 12 years, maybe 14 years. He was there a considerable length of time time. But Jesus appeared to him there. When things seemed hopeless, Jesus came to give hope. And he gave him something else to do. He basically used him as his amanuensis, his secretary. He says, take a letter, not one letter, take seven letters and send these to the angels 
of these seven churches in Asia Minor. We mentioned last week that Jesus in the vision, there are always these uh, symbolic aspects to the vision and that each letter begins with a reference of Jesus based on that initial vision in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. Uh, the seven stars, the angels of the seven churches, they're a number. And I usually would give you basically what I feel about a, a subject. There's a number of theories of what the stars are, but I believe the Greek word angelos, messenger, write this to a messenger of the church. Very likely that's speaking of the, the senior pastor, uh, the elder, the presbyter, translated often as bishop over all of the Christian house churches in those cities. Give that letter to this messenger of God that he can uh, have it read, disseminate it throughout the churches in those cities. Some people, as they look at these seven churches as well, uh, you'll come across it in many commentaries. Uh, it's an older theory, though. They, they believe that these seven letters themselves are symbolic in a sense that they're written and they reveal seven different uh, distinct errors of church history. Now, that's appealing to these people who hold that theory because the seventh letter would be to our time. And of course, that's the lukewarm church of Laodicea. And that's good for preachers to be able to hammer you that you are lukewarm and not good for much of anything, just like the church today. Because we tend to always think the time we're living in is the worst it's ever been. Well, it's not the worst it's ever been, but it's far from the best it's ever been as well. And I believe these may have some reflection in church history, but the primary purpose of them, Jesus wanted a word with his churches. And it shows in these seven letters that it is of incredible importance to our Lord Jesus what we do and say and act and why we do and say the things we do. What's our motivation? Jesus is the Lord of the church. He showed it's not our church, it's his church. It's his church to light the candle and shine the light in a community. And if a church fails at that, it's his church to take those candles away. And that's why most churches in North America rarely, most churches don't make their 100th anniversary. Crochu Baptist is 111 years. I commend you on that. But uh, most churches, they have a life cycle. They're young and vibrant and missionary-oriented, and then they age and get old and lose their vision and eventually disappear, and people up and go someplace else to a younger, more vibrant church. Jesus cares about the church, and we'll see that to the great church in Ephesus as he writes this letter today. I look at the church of Ephesus, and it, it's, it's a church that sadly, it seems, has lost its love for Christ. It's a good church. It's a true church, but it's a church that's lost its love. Is that important though? If it's a big, vibrant, successful church, if this was today, Ephesus might even have their own Christian network. They would certainly, their stellar star power preachers from Ephesus. Think of the people Ephesus has had as their pastors over the years. Men like Paul and Timothy, Priscilla, Aquila, people like that. They would, uh, they would, this church would be renowned. We would all know about this church. But Jesus says, you've failed at the most important thing if you've lost your love. Now, in this past May, I went with a group of students from our seminary up in Edmonton, Taylor Seminary, and we met some other students because Taylor is largely online as many uh, 
institutions of education. Uh, education is now contextual. It's where you live. And your courses are taken rather than uprooting you and taking you for three years to do a master's course. You stay where you're at and you take your education there. You only go to campus a couple times a year and you do your education on site as you continue your ministry. Well, a group of those students, we went uh, to the nation of Turkey. And Turkey, of course, is where the seven churches are found, modern-day Turkey. It's an Islamic country today because of the the history of that nation. And so many of the pictures you'll see each week are taken on that trip. When I found out that uh, the the kids on the trip, they're much better photographers than I am, and uh, they're much more technologically uh, apt than I ever will be. And they put all their uh, pictures on a Google Drive for all of us to use. I said, I'll use some of those pictures. Some were from a trip that my son Mike and I took as we backpacked and lived rough in Turkey uh, in 2011. And, uh, and others are from the most recent trip that I'd like to, I'd like to share with you. Because we want to look at each week what's happening on these sites today. This is Ephesus today as we look at that. And I don't know, probably Lance, you know, for the folks at home, we could probably make this full screen for them so they they see the, the pictures a little bit better. Ephesus today, as we look at it, there is, you notice, a valley full of ruins, like Roman ruins going down a hill. And this is fascinating. If you have a chance to visit Ephesus, this will be your experience. Because Ephesus was a great strategic uh, port city at one time, and it was uh, the largest city in Asia. It was the first city. It wasn't the most powerful. That was always Pergamum uh, to the north. But Ephesus was wealthy. It had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world in it. And as you go to Ephesus today, most of you will arrive by boat because just a few miles away, probably about 10 kilometers away, is the Turkish city of Kushadesi. And that's where all of the great cruise ships come in. And Ephesus, you'll be at Ephesus, the archaeological park at Ephesus, it'll be empty. And suddenly, there'll be thousands of people. It'll be packed because these cruise ships will disgorge thousands of people. They'll hop on a bus. They drive them to a to the upper gate in Ephesus, and you walk down between these two hills, and the hills, the ancient hills were like the guardians of Ephesus. The one you see going up on the right, that's Mount Prion. The the theater was built into the side of it. The one on the left is Mount Bulbul, and Ephesus, the rich people lived uh, between those two hills as the walls of Ephesus surrounded them and protected them. Uh, The next picture shows how, how... strategic it was. Look at the map of uh, that part of Asia Minor. That's the province of Asia Minor. And you see all of the roads, the interior roads, they lead to Ephesus as the great port city. Not only a port city, but like I said, it was the center in the ancient world for the worship of the goddess Artemis. You see the seven churches that uh, they're basically in a triangular formation. Next week will be up the coast, straight north to to uh, to uh, Smyrna, and then we'll go further north to Pergamon. Then we'll go down the ancient highway, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea at the end. These were all connected by major roads as well as rivers. Now, the uh, the, the river that came out at Ephesus into the uh, GNC there is called the Caster River. Unfortunately, it brought all of the silt from inland, and that, over the years, silted up the harbor 
and Ephesus fell out of favor as a deep water harbor. The Temple of Artemis, though, as we look, was the uh, wonder of the one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, along with the pyramids and the Colossus at Rhodes and so forth. If you want to see this temple today, you can't. Because as as paganism fell, classic paganism, Greco-Roman religion fell, Christianity took over as the religion of the Roman Empire, the Eastern Greek-speaking Roman Empire, which we call the Byzantines. They never referred to themselves as Byzantines. Uh, they were Romans. You talk to them. Their name was the Romanoi in Greek. And the Roman Empire didn't fall in the uh, 400s, as we often think. That was the Western side of the empire. The Roman Empire fell, believe it or not, in 1453 when the Turks uh, battered down the walls of of uh, Constantinople with cannons. That's how late the Roman Empire survived till. But uh, the empire, as it became Christianized, this great temple was uh, was looted for all of the precious marble and stone. And you can see some of these columns in the church of the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, the modern name of the ancient city of Constantinople, to this very day. In the midst of this temple was the great goddess, the fertility goddess of the Romans that everybody came to see, and her name was Artemis. The next picture shows the site of the temple today. It's just an empty, uh, vacant lot dug down into the ground. Uh, there's no columns. There's a few mismatched drums they've stacked on one another, and it gives the stork a place to nest on top. And the statue of Artemis there is one of uh, about three large statues that have been excavated in Ephesus. When the silversmiths rioted in the time of the Apostle Paul because he was taking away all of the business that they made their money on out of the temple. These are one of the statues, small silver statues of this goddess. This was the Roman goddess Diana. Well, Diana, she runs around in the forest in a beautiful tunic. She's beautiful. She has a bow and arrow, but she's based on the Greek goddess Artemis, which is a monstrous fertility deity with all the symbols of fertility. She's truly an atrocious and monstrous creature. And she was the goddess of fertility. She was the pagan goddess of Ephesus. But like I said, it didn't take long before the apostle Paul and the early believers began to take people away from the worship of paganism because it didn't touch the heartfelt needs that all people have the fertility goddess. The theater, I mentioned the silversmiths, they rioted in the theater. It's a famous theater, not the largest in the ancient world, but one of the largest. Much of the upper part of the theater, the stone has been scavenged. It was originally, uh, as the Romans enlarged it, up to 66 rows holding 25,000 people. It was an incredible place. And when you imagine the people angry at losing their jobs to Christianity, rioting in this theater, uh, and Paul wanting to go and address them and speak to them there, but the Christians afraid that he would be torn apart and lose his life, that's not something uncommon because this theater also hosted blood sports, uh, gladiator games, and people being fed to wild animals for the entertainment of the populace. Ephesus was a classic ancient city. It was pagan in every way. During the time of the Apostle John, as he came to Ephesus decades after Paul, it was a very different situation. The Christian population was much larger, probably had outgrown the large Jewish population that was there when the Apostle Paul came. The Roman emperor who was persecuting the Christians 
across the empire. We mentioned him last week. His name was Domitian. He had an enormous temple on that main street that the tourists walked down from the upper to the lower gate in Ephesus. Look at his enormous temple. It was a giant uh, complex built with a classic temple on top and and a colossal statue of Domitian standing about 35 feet high. Domitian, though, very quickly after his death, uh, he fell out of favor and the emperors who came after him uh, reversed his course and quit persecuting Christianity on such a large scale. Domitian himself was almost erased from history. In fact, his temple was demolished, his statue torn down, and they found the remnants of it in the basement vaults beneath the old temple platform. There's the temple platform today with the great arch in the middle, and there's me from 2011 standing to give scale to uh, the head and the marble hand of Domitian. That's how those giant statues were made. They were actually a giant uh, metallic and wooden framework with only the flesh portions, the hands and the head carved out of marble, and then the clothes were all made out of uh, usually metal, either bronze or the very expensive statues. The clothes would be made out of gold, but there's Domitian. Uh, That's what happened to him today. His reign is certainly in the past. The most striking part of visiting Ephesus is the main square where the main streets come together. You see the great library of Celsus. Look at this beautiful uh, facade of the library of Celsus. Uh, Next to it, to the right, is uh, the the great uh, monumental arch of Augustus. This is when Caesar Augustus visited Ephesus with his wife Livia. And as you read there, it's pretty easy to make out what it says in Latin. You see that the the Caesar himself, Augustus, he's called Pontifex. That's high priest. So the uh, Caesar was also seen as the high priest of the civil Roman religion. And when Christians refused to go along with the pagan religion which tied the empire together, we were seen as domestic terrorists, disturbers of the peace. And we were uh, sidelined and not allowed to take part in many public things. The Library of Celsus, interestingly, Celsus was the name of one of the early Gnostic heretics that the early church had much, uh, much, uh, trouble with over times. Uh, when John lived there, there was a Gnostic false teacher called Serenthus. And there's an interesting story that the aged apostle went to the public baths to have a, a steam. You know, when you're 95 years old, a steam bath would sure help your arthritis feel a lot better. But somebody mentioned to John that in the big public bath complex that Serenthus, the false teacher, was also there that day. How interesting. The leading Christian and the leading Gnostic are both having a bath together today. And John, they say, wrapped in only a towel, fled the uh, bathhouse because he felt the wrath of God was going to bring the roof down in the whole place because of this false teacher visiting the bathhouse on the same day as him. The front steps of that giant library facade there, you look, if you know where to look in the center You see this carved in the step itself. Look, can you make it out? A seven-branched menorah, a candlestick. Believe it or not, because of the large Jewish population, we have never found a single sign 
of the synagogue of Ephesus. We know it must have been beautiful and grand. The apostle Paul preached there for two months until they rejected his message. And then for two years, he moved to a a public lecture hall, the hall of Tyrannus. And he grew the church to such an extent that the book of Acts tells us that all the Greeks and Jews in the province of Asia heard the good news of the gospel because of Paul's teaching in Ephesus. Ephesus strategically the gospel fanned out and all of the highways and the churches in the surrounding churches of the seven churches, many of them were planted because of the ministry there in Ephesus. But all we have is one little bit of graffiti that shows a Jewish population. The Agora I mentioned, that was the public market, the public square. The Agora today lies in ruins. It's just a giant open area where people would buy and sell. And uh, to enter the Agora in later times when the Romans promoted emperor worship to tie the empire together, the Christians couldn't go to the market because you had to sacrifice to the divine Caesar to go into the market to show that you were a good uh, member uh, of the community. And Christians couldn't do that. So we were always in those times treated as outsiders. You remember that that vacant lot where the Temple of Artemis stood? If if I'd pointed it out in the background, there was a hill. The hill is called uh, is called Ayasaluk, the hill of the holy theologian. That was traditionally where the Apostle John lived in his later years. And there's a church built there over his tomb. And the last picture is the tomb of the Apostle John. And if you go to Israel, you know where he came from, the shore of the lake in Galilee. And now all of those years later, he's so far from home and he's laid to rest in the foreign land in Asia. And what God did with the life of that amazing man, it's just incredible to contemplate. Now, the letter to Ephesus. What did Jesus have to write to this powerful, successful church that was the star of the show in Asia? Ephesus was the greatest of the churches. Well, Jesus' letters, they follow a certain format. And the first part of the letters are always his commendation. The Lord begins by encouraging the church in their strengths. The Lord is wonderful. Before he sends us our correction or tells us our faults, he builds us up. He's encouraging God. He gives us our commendation. And we see that in the book of Revelation chapter 2. The letter begins. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Remember this references back to the vision John had of Jesus, the glorious Jesus, in chapter 1. Now Jesus says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men and you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and you have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. This, friends, is the hard-working church. They're busy. They're busy about their faith. They are hardworking. They are a missionary bunch. And not only that, Jesus says, you are faithful and true to the word of God. You don't let false teachers slip in. And remember the library of Celsus and Serenthus, the Gnostic heretic? There were many people trying to infiltrate the church with false teaching. You can find people with false teaching today. 
You can find them on Christian uh, television channels, unfortunately. 99% of what many of them say can be good and true, but they will put their own spin or twist on the gospel, oftentimes for financial gain for themselves. Sometimes it takes real discernment to know when somebody is teaching the true word of God or whether it is a false teaching. Well, the church in Ephesus took this serious. They examined people's teaching. They examined people who claimed to be sent by God. Remember, that's what apostle means, one who Jesus has sent out. That's what the word means. And they, Jesus says, you've tested them. You've weeded out the false ones. And it says a number of times in this passage that they have worked hard and they've been patient. They've persevered. The hard working, that Greek word means you have worked yourself to the point of exhaustion And yet, he says, you haven't grown weary. The Bible says, don't grow weary of doing good. Jesus commends them. They have worked hard. Now, those false teachers, the Apostle Paul, it's always interesting to see Ephesus from Paul's time, how different it is in John's time. Paul was looking forward to those false teachers coming. He knew his young church there that he had spent the most time that he had on any single church in his ministry. He knew they were going to be a target of false teachers. And so on his end of the third missionary journey, as he's going to take that great financial gift to the church in Jerusalem, he stops at a nearby port, the port of Miletus. And we read that he called the Ephesian elders. Those would be the pastors of all the churches of Ephesus. They all came down to the port and they met Paul dockside so they could pray with him. And he said, say your goodbyes because God has revealed to me that this will be my last visit, that there is something very hard in store for me. Well, we see in the book of Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 28, Paul speaking to those Ephesian elders. He says, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves And all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. This is a warning all churches need to take heed from. Why would we be under attack by false teachers? Well, Satan's the father of lies. He hates the church. And if he can and if he can get a church off track, then other people won't be hearing the good news of Christ. If he can get Christians fighting one another, people won't be drawn to the love of Christ because they won't see it exhibited in us, in believers in their own sphere. Well, Jesus commends them. You guys are faithful, steadfast, true. You know your Bible's front to back. Good job. But he doesn't end there. As he does in all but one of the letters, he moves from commendation to accusation. I have this against you. You've forgotten your love. You've forgotten your love for Jesus. It's only one short little verse. Forgotten love. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, we read, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. 
mean, it goes on and explains it in a bit, but that's it. You're hardworking. You know your Bibles. You're busy, busy, busy. You've forgotten your first love. It's almost as if the church is personified as a church full of Marthas rather than Marys. Martha, busy in the kitchen, going about, running every program, a busy church, a successful church, a big church, catering to the needs of all the people, but not a church that compromises, a church that's faithful and true, busy, busy, busy. But it's a barren busy because the one of whom we're to be all about has been forgotten. Where's Jesus in the midst of all this? And I've never been part of an earthly church that didn't struggle with this. We have people in the churches, all churches want to run it like a business. And we have to, to an extent, we're a human organization. But sometimes that's all we are. If we forget the risen Christ, and if we are not in love with Him and do everything out of that love for Him, what good are we? We're just a human organization. When you first see this verse, you say, it's just a little thing. Yeah, you forgot your first love. It doesn't burn so bright. But look, you got this, 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 this. You're like that legalistic person who knows their Bible front to back, but they're hard-hearted and they bruise the fruit and they drive away more people than they'll ever attract because we've lost our first love. It's not a small thing. In fact, it's the most important thing. The Apostle Paul writing to a church that struggled in this area as well. And it's interesting, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he mentions the love of God 20 times. They needed to hear it. Truth is good. I'm giving you the truth. But it's all about love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Paul writes to the church in Corinth. We call it the love chapter. Unfortunately, it's usually only trotted out at weddings when it's the lifeblood of all Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're reminded of the importance of love. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, boy, that'd make a good TV show. But have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. The Christian who's forgotten their love, they, they achieve nothing of eternal value. They wasted the gospel. They may be in heaven one day, but all that God wanted to do in them and through them has been lost because their primary motivation has been lost. Jesus says, you're doing great. But more important than what you're doing is why you're doing it and for whom you're doing it. They've forgotten their first love. Forgotten it. Years ago, I had a number of opportunities to, to sit under the teaching of a man who created a wonderful youth ministry called Sun Life. And then later applying those same principles to, to churches, it was called Growing Healthy Churches. His name was Dan Spader. 
And Dan may not have originated with him, but it certainly was something that he was strong in. Dan said, most of us, rather than living our lives in Christianity, which is centered around Jesus, and he's the main motivation for everything we do at home, at church, at work, at play, at rest. That's what Christianity is, little Christ, followers of Jesus. He says, what we find is something close, but no cigar. It's, he called it churchianity. Not Christianity, churchianity. And I find most of us are perfectly happy living in the land of churchianity. Church is what we're all about. Church doors are open, we're there. It's all about church, the human organization, the budgets, the meetings, constitutions, whatever. We're a human organization. We need those things, but they can't ever be at the heart of what we do or why we do it. We can be busy feeding the poor. But as Paul said to the Corinthians, if you don't love the ones that you're feeding, you gain nothing, nothing. Friends, let's not settle for churchianity. We need to push on. We need that love that's been lost so we can get back to Christianity. It's not a small thing. Is there hope for Ephesus? Is there hope for any church today to reclaim the love of God, our first love? Well, Jesus says there is. These are letters of hope. He moves, as he does, from accusation to admonition. When you admonish somebody, you are, you are encouraging them to take steps, action steps, to correct what's gone wrong. You're being admonished. We're always told as pastors in the Bible to admonish. It's correction. It's a hard one. Nobody likes to do that. Parents, your hardest job, discipline, correction of kids. The kids don't enjoy it. You don't enjoy it, but it's so necessary. In the same way, in the family of God, we all need God's correction and admonishment. The book of Hebrews says God only corrects those that he loves. You're his precious child. He wants you on track, not going off track. So when it comes to people whose love has burned low in the busyness, the barren busyness of Christianity, Jesus admonishes them with these amazing steps. He says, remember, repent, repeat. It's so practical. You can remember those three R's. As God speaks to you about your own heart, remember, repent, repeat. Commit those little words to memory because they come right out of Jesus' admonishment to the church. We see that in verses 5 and 6. Jesus writes to the Ephesian Christians, Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent means to turn around, about face. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We won't talk much about this mysterious group called the Nicolaitans because they show up in the Pergamum letter where the Ephesians, the true Ephesians rejecting false teaching, they've rejected the Nicolaitan false teaching. The church in Pergamon, they embraced it. So we'll talk more about them in a couple weeks. Jesus is saying, 
It begins with remembering. Before you can be that young, first love Christian again, do you remember those days? Those of you who are old enough, when we accept Christ as little kids, and I love to see the faith of little kids, but remember, I remember being a teenager, going to every Bible study we could. The only music was Christian music. It was just, you know, I remember taking my Bible to school, knowing that it would make me an object of ridicule, but making that a priority. You know, it was, you look back at it now, you say, yeah, I was a bit kooky. And Jesus says, that's a good kooky. You need some of that today. Now, let's be honest. First love, married people, many anniversaries under your belt. We say rightfully so. Mature love, it deepens. It becomes solid. It endures. But it still needs a date night. It still needs to make your spouse your priority. When you are young and in love, everything about them fascinates you and you can't reach the end of it. Oh, the fountain of love from the eyes of your beloved. It's enough. You could live on it. But later, yeah, you take them for granted. Let's be honest. We all do a bit. That's human nature. But we can't take that same human nature into our relationship with Jesus. It needs to be our motivation. We need to recognize how much he loved us and focus on it. Repent, turn back to him and do those things you did at first. Remember when you couldn't get enough of God's word, you fed on it. You need to make God's word a priority. Communication with him. You need to make your prayer life with God a priority. Practice his presence Prayer is not something you do once in a while before a meal or go to some place to pray. It's your breath. He's with you. He lives in your heart. You're always connected. Why do we need to remember those early days? Because God remembers them too. An amazing verse. Before God has the prophet Jeremiah correct the people in that enormous book, he says the reason is because The people of Israel are my beloved. And I remember their young love and I miss it. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to me. This is Jeremiah speaking. God says, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you love me and followed me through the desert through a land not sown. The love of a young bride. That's the type of love that characterized young Israel coming out of the wilderness wanderings, and then they forgot it. And the church in Ephesus, from that young love of Paul's day by the mature, powerful, successful church of John's day, they were good at churchianity, but they had lost their first love. They needed to repent and confess, and turn back to him. And we know when we repent. I find the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, tie so closely to the letters that Jesus writes to these churches in Asia Minor that John had contact with. It's like after hearing what Jesus wrote to the churches, the Holy Spirit prompted John to write practical outworking of these letters. For instance, in 1st John chapter 1, John writes in verse 8, 
If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. All it takes is turning back to God, confessing, and He will cleanse us and forgive us. We can be young and in love with Him again. That's a precious thing. Jesus, after he admonishes us to remember and repent and repeat those things we did when we were young and in love with Jesus, he makes a promise. Every one of these seven letters are going to end with a promise. And this promise, as we sang that wonderful song this morning, is to those who overcome. The song said we will not be overcome. Why? Because we are overcomers. That's one of the names in the book of Revelation for believers. They're the ones who overcome the false teaching, churchianity, all of the things that we see in these letters. These are the people who overcome. And to those believers who love the Lord, he promises wonderful things. The letter to the Ephesians in chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 7, we see Jesus' promise to Ephesus. He says, He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Later in the book of Revelation, we see the tree of life in the new Jerusalem as a symbol that we have eternal life. That's a wonderful promise to those who overcome eternal life symbolized by eating from the tree of life. Remember the tree of life? It's from the book of Genesis. There were two trees, not just one, and it certainly never had, was, no apple was ever mentioned. There were two trees we're told of in the Garden of Eden. One was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were not allowed to eat from it. There was another tree, though, the tree of life. And after sinning and eating the forbidden fruit. God could not leave them in the garden lest they would eat from the tree of life and be confirmed eternally in sin. There would be no hope of salvation if they had eaten from the tree of life. None. That tree and God speaking of it says in verse 22 of Genesis 3, and the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forevermore. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. It goes a little further, I'll read. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. It was off limits. We never could have eternal life until Jesus. Jesus offers eternal life. But you may say, but Pastor Allen, that says those special people, only the overcomers, the super spiritual elite receive this promise. It's for overcomers. But again, John's letter First John, what does he say about overcomers to explain those people that he saw all the promises to in the letters to the churches? 
John writes in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. What is that that overcomes the world? Only he. Or who is that that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Christians who have put their faith in Christ and been born again, they are the overcomers who overcome the world. And your promise, friend, is eternal life from the tree of life. That which was so long ago denied to us in the garden is ours. This lesson, they're so applicable. Don't be so focused on the human institution. It's important. It's necessary. But it's not remotely what we're about. From the outside looking in, people call us anything from a social club to a cult. That's what an organization looks like. But on the inside... It's got to be the family of God for we're the bride of Christ and we love him with all our hearts. That's what we need to be about. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the letters to the churches. For Lord, they are letters to your people for you care about us. Lord, the church and what we're up to and what we're about is not some minor part of the kingdom of God. The ecclesia, the church, the called out assembly, Lord, we are your plan to win the lost, to change the world, to shine your light, to show your love, to speak your word of truth and grace. And Lord, the church needs to be made up of overcomers, people who overcome the world through faith in Jesus, for faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And Lord, in doing that, that we don't lose the most important. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Lord, search our hearts. Help us to be honest with you about where we're at? Are we taking you for granted? Is our love burn low? Lord, speak to us. Fan that flame into light again. Revive us, Father. Revive our love. For we pray in the name of our risen Lord Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful Lord's Day. God bless.